Hey friends, welcome back to Zach and Brian Watch the Watchmen. We are going to be talking about the fifth episode of Watchmen, Little Fear of Lightning. Uh, again, if you have not watched this episode, please, right now, stop, go watch it, and come back, because there's a lot to unpack from this episode. Um, first of all, uh, how are you, Zach? I'm doing well. Good, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, the episode title comes from a quote by Jules Verne, which was, If there were no thunder, men would have little fear of lightning. And uh, Jules Verne sort of tangentially pops up later in the episode, so we'll talk about that when we get to it. Um, so this episode begins with the uh, the first flashback we've had to 1985, to November 2nd, to the uh, events at the end of the Watchmen book. And uh, we see a young looking glass, Wade himself, uh, in Hoboken, New Jersey, as part of a church outreach group traveling there from Tulsa. He is there because he says, quote, New Jersey is where the sinners are. And I can attest to that. So <laughs> let's just start there. So um, how quickly into the episode did you realize this was a looking glass uh, sort of flashback? Um, I assumed that that was looking glass like pretty quickly when it, um, you know, mentioned that they were from Tulsa. Um, he just, he just seemed the actor that they cast just seemed exactly like a young looking glass. So pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah. I have to say the casting was very good and it wasn't like stunty casting. It didn't look mm -hmm. exactly like him, but the guy's mannerisms and everything were pretty perfect. Yeah. Yeah, uh, this show is doing a very nice job with this casting, even for small roles. So uh, we see Wade, and he he's sort of getting up the, the courage to go up to a group of people and start proselytizing to them. He is there talking about how the Doomsday Clock is one minute to midnight, and people need to repent. And he, he, he picks basically the cast of the lost boys uh yeah <laughs> yeah well specifically they're like the top knot gang from yeah. from the original uh watchmen yes um, or they're they they seem to be members because they have that like specific hairstyle or whatever right, yeah and uh, as you can guess his uh attempting to recruit them to his uh to listen to him does not go very well he gets his pamphlets uh, knocked out of his hand, but there's a young lady there who seems to feel pity on him, and she takes him away. She wants to hear more about the pandas. There are pandas on the uh, the the pamphlet, and so she takes him into the House of Mirrors. And Zach, why don't you tell us what happens in the House of Mirrors? Well, so she seems like she is about to, you know, attempt to seduce him. You know, him being a um religious youth and uh you know un unsullied by the ways of the world she um <laughs> seems to want to um i guess show him a good time i guess but well, she, sadly she, she, she specifically says you know before we're all like you know before yes, we all get yes, nuked you want right, right. you should lose your virginity essentially Right, right, because this is, you know, even though they don't know what's about to happen, the doomsday clock is, you know, one minute to midnight, the world's on the brink of nuclear Armageddon, and so, yeah, just kind of, you know, live it up while you can, but um, she's, you know, just screwing with him, she takes his clothes and leaves him naked in, uh, in a hall of mirrors. It's an incredibly cruel trick she plays on him. Because, yeah, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but, you know, you, you see this guy who seemingly is very earnest in his convictions and is trying to be a good person and sort of falls prey to this person who is claiming to be nice, but it turns out is not very nice. And you just feel so sorry for him. And you see, he basically says to himself, like, look what you've done. You're a sinner and you're basically paying for being a sinner right now. Yeah. Uh, he can't even feel sorry for himself. He just gets mad at himself. Right. Uh, right. Which is painful to watch. <laughs> yes. Yes, um, it is. Uh, but so then while he is berating himself in the House of Mirrors, uh, the ev the events of 11-2 start to begin. And so the Hall of Mirrors starts to shake. He hears this high-pitched noise. All the mirrors get smashed. 
he falls down in pain. He is bleeding from the ears. And then it all stops, and he goes outside, and he finds the young lady who stole his clothes, and he takes his clothes back. But she is she is quite dead, as is everybody else who is on the street. Um, we should just say, for those that aren't super familiar with um, local New Jersey and New York geography, Hoboken is on the other side of the Hudson River from New York. It is about as close as you can get to New York City without being in New York City. And so um, it makes sense that the the sort of the effects of 11-2 would not be uh, just geographically pinned to one state, but would be a, you know, some sort of radius of, of, of space. And so the people in Hoboken are just as dead as the people in Manhattan are at this point. Yeah. Um, you you want to know what's fascinating about this sequence to me? What's that? It's just like how... Maybe this is this is awful, but like the way that the kind of like absurd horror of being left in the middle of a carnival without your clothes and how much that somehow while viewing that overshadowed the like wanton destruction of the <laughs> of the squid exploding. Just kind of like that existential terror of having to like walk out of the fun house without any clothes and have to like face that down and then compare that to what actually happens. And they're both just so terrifying, but somehow like I, I almost thought like, well, at least the squid blew up. So he (laughs) is not the most absurd thing in the world, which is terrible. It's absolutely terrible, but it's just like the way that my mind went while watching this happen. Well, I I have Uh, written down in my notes that, it's like the cruelest trick that she could have played on him, but she saved his life in two different ways. Like if, if he had been outside, he would have died. And yeah. if, if he had been inside, but the squid didn't happen, you essentially can picture his church group, if not abandoning him, at least him being marked with this forever. For exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So similar yeah. thought process there. I did want to say, I find it interesting that the, uh, Ferris wheel is called the atomic wheel. Okay. That that fits in with a lot of sort of, you know, Dr. Manhattan iconography and all of that. Um, so then from there, we, we start to hear the, the, the strains of Frank Sinatra's New York, New York. Uh, Frank Sinatra, a Hoboken native. So that is appropriate for a number of reasons. Uh, Frank Sinatra also, uh, my great grandmother was his wet nurse. Hmm. My, my great grandmother was next door neighbors to the Sinatras in Hoboken. So how about that? A little personal history there from from, uh, from good old Brian. So uh, then we see this absurd television commercial that is trying to get people to come back to New York, and that is why we hear New York, New York. That is that is the 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 backing of the commercial, and we we see people say like, "I came back to hike through Central Park. I came back for this." And the the two that really stuck out to me is there's a police officer who says, uh, "You know, if it gets any safer." I'm going to be out of a job, which is just such a cheesy line to throw in there. But then we see uh, Michael Imperioli, the uh, the actor known for his role as Christopher Moltisanti on The Sopranos and also Spider in Goodfellas. And he basically says, uh, we like our squid now with lemon and a little marinara sauce in just a really cheesy, horrible commercial. But before we get to that commercial for a second, Zach, I have a very important question for you. Do you think that the Sopranos happened in this world? Hmm. Is there a show called The Sopranos in this world? I'm going to guess no. Only because I think that a lot of the media that we would know probably didn't happen in the Watchmen universe. There's just too many changes. Yeah, and uh, we're too many get, variables. We're gonna get to some of that media later in this episode. Um, but anyway, we see um, we see Looking Glass at, in at his day job, his cover story job, and he is basically a market research analyst who looks at the people in a market research setting. And despite what they are telling the folks running the market research, he is sort of telling them if if they're telling the truth or not. Um, and, you know, we see Looking Glass as the cop whose job it is to 
discern truth from the seventh K members. And so this is a, a logical um, sort of real life job for him, but it's also a, a pretty fun job for him. I really enjoyed this twist. twist is yeah, I would. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. Um, yeah. I, you almost get the impression though, that it's like not very fun for him. It's kind of mundane. Um that he has to deal with the kind of like fake facades that people put on. And you could see how he would get very, um, very jaded, very cynical. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, we see in the first episode that, and it's the first episode that Angela's bakery is sort of her, you know, her going into the bakery is like flipping the head off the Shakespeare statue and the, Batman and Robin uh, poles come out from behind the 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 wall there. You know, it's how she gets into cop world. And for Looking Glass, he has a storage locker he puts his car into, and then he finds his other vehicle, and, you know, that's where he makes the switch and becomes a cop. Yeah, he puts his face on. Yes, exactly. Um, so we see a, a, a meeting of the Tulsa police force, and they are um, they are discussing... Uh, sort of how to track down the Seventh Cavalry, and Laurie suggests that they find the church that is used in the Seventh K video, and that they find the church, they can find out where they are. And um, afterwards, we see Sister Knight talking with Looking Glass at his desk about the pills. She wants to know if his ex has come through yet, and uh, she has not. And then. Um, He's called into Lori's office, and Lori basically uses this time to just fuck with him. He keeps, she keeps calling him Mirror Guy, and uh, he says, "Like you know, you you know very well it's Looking Glass." And she says, "But you can have Mirror Guy if you want," which is which is very funny. Um, I w- I, w- I want to take a minute really quick sure. because um, what you're saying brings up a really good point and i think like a parallel to another um a a character from another lindelof project a character from lost um i get major john locke vibes from looking glass yeah i could see that just this guy who is just overlooked and and just kind of dunked on at every possible turn who is kind of essentially just like a good guy but who you know also like a a man of faith a um very zealous maybe overzealous in his ideals and things um i i just got a lot of john locke vibes and this scene kind of highlighted some of that to me yeah i could definitely see that um I thought you were going to compare Lori to someone on Lost. Um, no. And I wasn't really sure who you were going for there, but I could definitely see the John Locke comparison. Yeah, I guess we could do the DC three cast thing where we, uh, you know, cast everyone. If they, <laughs> <laughs> but we won't subject our listeners to How about that this? if they want to go. After this season, we'll do that for both The Leftovers and Lost. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll do it. We'll do a special bonus app with that or something. All right. Um but so then Lori is about to let him leave, and she says, like, oh, what are these pills? And he, he plays dumb, and she says that she's uh, bugged his cactus on his desk. And she says, don't take it personally. I'm FBI. We bug shit. <laughs> and I appreciate that. But, but you know, we begin to see that, that Lori, although working in Tulsa, is definitely not working for the police. Mm-hmm. Um. So uh, we also I wanted to say just two other things here that were interesting. Um, so she refers to uh, Looking Glass as having sad blue eyes, which is similar to old blue eyes, Frank Sinatra's nickname. And we get a second Sinatra song when he is getting when he is getting his uh, his very, very sad meal together. We hear Some Enchanted Evening by Frank Sinatra there. Um I don't think there's any real connection between Sinatra and uh, and Looking Glass, just the Hoboken thing, and you know, it's it's a nice it's a nice example of this show just uh, 
working on a lot of levels. Yeah. So uh, why don't you tell our listeners, Zach, what is what does he have for dinner in his in his house? Um, I can't remember exactly. I'm assuming it's beans, though. It is, it is just a cold can of beans. Oh, the Rorschach parallels. Yeah. Um, part of me think that's a little maybe too on the nose, especially since we've kind of I think. We saw him, you know, eating a can of beans mask up uh, a few episodes ago when he was watching American Hero Story. Yes. Um, but, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. To me, that was one of the two things, in, uh, maybe three things in this episode that maybe felt a little bit off to me. Like That, that, that felt very, very um, on the nose. This episode also did something I really didn't like, which is that there were a number of times, and I think it happens more later in the show, where oh no, it definitely happens once in Laurie's office, where basically the show has to put a really fine point on something by showing a flashback to something we've already seen. Like she says, like you were in New York on eleven two. He says Hoboken actually, and then they show the young man screaming as if you're not sure that was that was Looking Glass. Now you're like made absolutely oh, sure of it. And that, yeah. that happens three times throughout the episode where they just really hammer home something. And I don't think it needed to do that. And I don't think I'm such a savvy TV watcher that I'm getting something somebody else wouldn't get. I think everybody understands those things. Mm-hmm. And it just felt a little bit like uh, cheesy, dramatic television. Yeah, I, I can see that, yeah. So then we are we are on the uh, we are on the we're, we're sitting on the couch with Looking Glass. He's watching American Hero Story. He's specifically watching Looking Glass. Fuck uh, Captain Metropolis here. Looking Glass. You I'm mean? Sorry, uh, Looking Glass. I'm sorry. Put justice. justice. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Getting my characters confused here. Yeah. Um, in a sort of very very explicit sex scene for a television program. Well, it is HBO. I don't mean I don't mean for oh, us. I, I mean, see what you mean for American well, Hero Story. Well, but you remember there was that episode where they were, you know, essentially like this is like NC seventeen every right, morning yes. that oh, we right. can throw yeah. at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. um that yeah, that is interesting. Um I yeah, especially kind of what we know about technology and, and the way things progressed and, and I guess like media as an extension of that in the Watchmen universe, it does kind of make you wonder a little bit more like what is the state of media in the Watchmen universe and right. apparently it's pretty it's pretty lax unless this is, this is coming on some you know their uh, version of premium, HBO yeah yeah some premium channel but uh the way it's advertised it almost seems like it's you know coming into every home in America or something right so then uh, this alarm goes off that we are led to believe is a squid uh, alarm and he, looking glass runs out of his house he goes into his bunker he starts punching an alarm thing and basically we learn that this is a drill he is doing and then the alarm won't go off and so he has to rip his like device out of his closet and has some very comedic uh sort of stomping on this on this um Alarm system? I don't even know what else, what's really called the device itself. Yeah. Um, but, but so he calls the company and basically says, you know, what are you, you know, you have to send me a new one. And the people on the, on the phone seem horrified by how often he is doing these drills. They say it should happen no more than once a month or so, and he's done over 500. We don't know for how long it's taken him to get to 500, but... 500 months is a long time. 500 months is like 40-something years, so um, that's not what he's doing. Um, But in this scene, it's something I didn't catch until my second watch of the episode, there is a... uh, uh, He has a a diploma of sorts on the wall. It looks like it might be from a correspondence course or something, but it's it's celebrating his, like, degree or whatever in extraterrestrial squid science. (laughs) So he seems... Very obsessed with the squid fall. Yeah, for for good reason. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um. All right. So then we we get we see uh, we see him at work again. 
he is uh, there's a cereal called Smileyos, which is a very clear sort of smiley face button reference from uh, from this episode. And he gets a text from his ex-wife that she is uh, she has his pills. Come get them. So we go to a place that is called Splice of Life, which is a, a very punny title. And uh, or that might just be the, the slogan. I don't remember. Anyway. And we see that his wife is some sort of genetic scientist. And he walks into her office, and there are three dogs there. And she asks him, just like, naked eye, is this dog the same as the others? And he thinks that it's slightly bigger. And so after offering him the dog, which he declines, she basically puts the dog in what looks like a washing machine, but you know just vaporizes the dog. Yeah, it's just like, push, ding, and yeah, you know it's gone. Um, Because, yeah, the dog is a clone, and... Uh, yeah, disposable, I guess. It it was a pretty jarring scene. (laughs) Yeah, it was. Uh, so do you want to talk a little bit about the relationship that, that, uh, that Looking Glass has with his, I I feel like calling him Looking Glass. His first name is, um, Wade, right? Wade, yeah. That Wade has with Cynthia, his ex-wife. Yeah, for some, which for some reason just always, like, makes me think of Wade Wilson. Right. Deadpool. Um, so I almost like prefer to just call him Looking Glass. But uh, yeah, their relationship is strained to say the least. Um, you get the impression that she put up with his eccentricities for a long time, um, but also he um, never quite was able to trust her. Um, he has extreme trust issues stemming back to that night uh, of the squid explosion. And she basically says to him, I spent seven years trying to convince you I wasn't going to steal your clothes and kick you in the balls. Yeah. And you, know, you just, it's pretty easy to see what type of, what type of guy he was, what type of husband he was. Um, but anyway, he tells her that the pills are nostalgia and that she basically says that, you know, They took them off the market because putting memories in your brain makes you go insane. And so we we don't know too much about these nostalgia pills just yet. But suffice it to say, we can presume that these are Will's memories. Uh, At least that's what I presumed. That's the presumption, yeah. And um, it's interesting that they're called nostalgia um, because there was the perfume in the original Watchmen called Nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Um, just a you know, little nod callback there. Um, and I would I, think that maybe it's a similar company making it too. There may be Vite's companies behind this as well. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Um, Alright, so let's, um, let's move to the next scene then, which is uh, we see Wade Looking Glass running a support group for people who have been affected by Eleven Two, and uh, we get a woman who walks in, and when she walks in, Wade asks her, "Are you a friend of Nemo's?" And she says yes, and so that seems to be the equivalent of what people in Alcoholics Anonymous would call a friend of Bill W's. It's a way of of sort of talking about being in recovery without admitting to the world that you're in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can only presume that Nemo here does not mean the fish, but means Captain Nemo, the Jules Verne character, which leads us to the name of the episode, which is a Jules Verne quote. Um, I believe it's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea Captain Nemo is from. Is that correct? I think that's right, yeah. Uh, and I believe in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea... I'm sorry, he's... There are uh, there are a couple of books that Captain Nemo appears in, um, and I believe that there is a squid that plays a major role. Yep, a squid of quote colossal dimensions appears in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. So, uh, that is that is the reason for that. So, um, you want to talk about this this support group a little bit? Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, it highlights something about the um, the squid monster in Watchmen that I think because of the the point that it happens in the book, you don't really 
think about as much and that is not only like the physical effects that the explosion had you know killing thousands and thousands of people but the like psychic after effects that it had because it was a a psychic weapon um and you have people like there's one person there who was at the meeting who wasn't even alive when um when 11-2 happened and he is suffering from psychic repercussions that he believes are like stemming from his mother i think who was who was she was, uh, like, Hobo- she, she was in brooklyn sorry she was in brooklyn. yeah yeah right which is a really interesting idea um you know because i think like there is actual like scientific research out there about like the way trauma is passed on genetically and and, and like this is some kind of you know this is totally different this is you know a fantastical psychic trauma um but i thought it was a really interesting way of you know kind of talking about that and dealing with it um and then you know you have this other character who comes in and just sits and watches um this new character and we find out later her connection to the the um 11-2 wasn't even the event itself but rather a i think scorsese film about no, no, 11-2. Uh, steven spielberg spielberg that's yeah. it yeah okay we'll, I was, we'll get yeah, to that okay, in one know. second but i'm realizing we forgot a major thing to talk about what's that we get a name for the stuff that his mask is made of which is called reflectoline and yes. we find out that this stuff is advertised as being able to protect you from psychic blasts in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, we, we see that he's wearing a hat. Most of the time he is not wearing his mask and the hat is lined with this stuff. Right, right. And he orders it from the same company that he buys his alarm yeah, system exactly. from. Yes. Yeah, um, because he, he asks for a, another roll of it, yes. uh, I think. Yeah. Yes. Um, so that is, you know, obviously it's, it's, a it's a look that is intimidating, but it's also a very practical thing for Wade to be wearing. Yes. Okay. So, um, so let's talk about it. So the film that, that she's talking about is called Pale Horse, which is the name of the band that is playing at Madison Square. Oh, I'm sorry. I want to talk about one thing before then. I'll get to Pale okay. I want to talk about basically their version of the serenity prayer which is we know there are other dimensions than this one, but this is the dimension where we live and we will not live in fear. And uh, I just find that I, I find this whole like parallel to AA very fascinating. Yeah. Um, it's good. Anyway. So pale horse is a, a Spielberg film. Pale horse, is the name of the band playing at Madison square garden, the night that 11, two happens. I believe that is a direct reference to the comic. I did not pull out my copy of Watchmen today and look at it, but I'm almost positive that that is the case. Um, Pale Horse is uh, the name of one of the horsemen of the apocalypse, Death, uh, rides in on a pale horse in the Book of Revelation. It's also the name of an Agatha Christie novel. I was doing some research on this earlier today. And uh, in this this novel, there's a woman who gives a confession to a Catholic priest, but, uh, and she tells him, basically something he has to do to stop a crime, but he is killed before he can stop the crime. And that seems to me to be uh, thematically very similar to 11-2 also. That mm-hmm. Vite gives this information to everybody, but they can't do anything about it. It's too late. Um, but anyway, I realized upon second watching that Pale Horse is this universe's Schindler's List in that she mentions it's in black and white, but there's a girl wearing a red jacket. And like Schindler's List, there's the red scarf on top of the black and white. And that's also directed okay. by Spielberg. And so this is very much the, the Schindler's List equivalent. That Spielberg made this movie, and the years even match up, like the year he made it. Spielberg makes this movie instead of making Schindler's List. Right, right. Which again, to go back to your Sopranos question, I think that, you know, all of the various events, but then also kind of the big focal event of 11-2 would probably have a huge change, huge shift on the the art and the media that gets made. And so I would be very surprised if really any of the things that exist in, in our world would be in that, in, you know, in the Watchmen universe. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this specifically as a Schindler's List thing, 
that mm-hmm. like when 9-11 happened, for a little while it seemed like 9-11 was going to be pretty much the only – it was going to be the go-to reference for tragedy for a very long time. And, and while it was, I think pretty quickly people stopped treating it as this thing you can't talk about or as this um, – like basically, I think, and I don't know if this is just like the cynical world we live in now, but I feel like nine eleven jokes happened way before jokes about other tragedies would have happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I don't know. I guess this event, because there wasn't a, a human villain in it, um, I guess it would it would supersede things like the Holocaust because it would it wouldn't be this group versus another group. It would be specifically everybody versus something else right right so and again you, kind of going back to be, like uh sort of the over overriding tragedy I, of our time yeah i think so one because it's you know it is a i mean again like the extraterrestrial nature of it which was the whole point in the first place and also, again, like circling back to the like the psychic aftermath of it and how that, you know, would potentially be even more devastating than the death toll in some ways. Just the people who continue to live with that. Um, yeah, I, I think that that is very reasonable. Yeah. Right. Um, not obviously not to make light of real world tragedies. It's just a hypothetical. Right. Um, exactly. Yes. You know, you know yeah. Yeah, which also in a way carry their own sort of psychic tragedy as well, um, but uh, you know, as a as a metaphor, it works well, yeah. I think. So, here's where I have a bit of a problem with this episode, um, or just with the logic within this episode, and this might be me very much nitpicking, but I, I don't think it is, and I think there's a reason why, but I don't know if that reason why is is clear enough and so he here's what it is so we get this conversation and do we ever learn the name of the woman who comes into the support group i think she does give her name but i cannot remember it off the top of my head i also i couldn't find it on imdb uh she was Uh not listed with a name on imdb but it doesn't mean it's not there um anyway so she asks she finds out what wade does for a living his market research job not his cop job and she basically tries to she tricks him or she tries to trick him into into not knowing what she does for a living and he can see right through her lies until she says the thing that she really is she's a radiologist and um and so we see how good Wade is at sort of getting through people's bullshit but then right after that she begins to tell him this pale horse story and it turns out spoiler alert for 10 minutes from now that none of that is likely true, that that she is Seventh Cavalry and that she is, she's tricking him into getting there, and he doesn't see through it at all. And I think what the show is trying to say is that he is easily duped by women. We sort of see evidence of that along the way, um, and even his ex-wife makes a reference to you know that he falls for terrible women. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, this whole sequence plays out as kind of a mirror of the opening sequence. And I think it's you You are meant to, as soon as he starts talking to this woman, begin to feel apprehensive and kind of wait for that shoe to drop. Yeah. Um, but I also think it is possible to I think it's twofold. I think you're like take that he has this kind of weakness with women, but also this kind of weakness with anything maybe regarding 11 to um, that. That's also a blind spot for him, I think. Um, so yeah, he puts on this exterior that, you know, he is like very savvy, very smart, um, but he is very easily duped. Yes. And, and we see that sort of time and time again, unfortunately for him. Um, but so we get the impression that she is trying to seduce him and, uh, she basically kisses him before she leaves. And the, the friend that picks her up that she called because she was drunk as he's pulling away, you see a head of lettuce fall out of the car and looking glass sobers up right quick. 
and begins to follow and tries to essentially figure out what is going on here. And he, he follows them to an old abandoned department store and uh, he sees this woman and her accomplice put on masks and he goes and he double checks her, uh, he double checks the trunk. And yes, there is, there is lots of, uh, there's lots of lettuce there. He finds a gun in the, uh, in the glove box of the car and he goes into the 7th K headquarters and Zach, why don't you start by telling us some of the things he encounters in the 7th K headquarters? Well, so one thing I did want to note is that he, I thought it was interesting that he doesn't put a mask on. I would have assumed that he probably at least had a spare somewhere nearby, but he doesn't attempt to disguise himself at all when he like goes in. I wonder about that because we see two places where he has masks. We see that he has it in his storage locker, where his car is, and then we uh-huh. see he has one that is in a safe in his house. So I, I wonder if how many spare masks he has floating around. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just I did think that it was just kind of interesting and reckless that he that he did that just because of how important identity is and like protecting identity. But um as far as like things that he sees, he goes in. Um, and one of the first things that I remember seeing like very prominently is a um, kind of almost graffitied mural inside um, that looks like the eye of the squid monster. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, I can't talk about this at all, but it also has meaning maybe later on <laughs> that is really fascinating but um on, on initial viewing it looks like the eye of the squid um and um he he goes in a little bit further and he sees kind of a uh essentially like a set that is the church that the um seventh k video was filmed in yes and as as he is looking at this church in sort of wonder out of nowhere, a basketball just falls from the ceiling Mm -hmm. and not from like a hole in the ceiling or from some sort of shelf on the ceiling. It just falls seemingly out of nowhere. Yeah. And we see some seventh K members come and get the basketball and then, he follows them and he sees that they have basically a teleporter that they are throwing basketballs into. Yeah. They have built a, a portal. Uh, it is specifically a CX nine, two, four teleportation window, which he mentions later. I love the detail that looking glass just knows all this shit so well. This is this is just this is a really important part of his life, and he has he has all this stuff committed to memory. Um, but so uh, he he tries to stop them. He goes to fire the gun, but it's full of blanks, and uh, he is taken to a room where he is he is um, handcuffed to a chair. And as he is sitting there throughout this scene, basketballs just fall all around him a couple of times. Um, Zach, have you seen Boogie Nights? No. Okay, well, this there's a scene in Boogie Nights where there's somebody who was just throwing... You know those little Chinese firecrackers you throw on the ground? Yeah. There is somebody throwing those in a very tense scene, and you're just you're waiting for the tension to break, and just these little boom explosions happen throughout the scene. And I feel like that's essentially what the basketballs are here. They're just these, like... It's a very tense scene, and then a basketball falls, and it, just, it breaks it up for a second. But... We see um, a seventh K member talking to him, and uh, he says, "Are you even trying to disguise your voice, Senator?" And it's Bob Benson himself, Senator Keene. Uh, not great, Bob. Not, not great, Bob at all. So you and I were texting about this a little bit. I'm not a huge fan of this reveal. So, yeah, I wasn't either. At first, and because I, my, initially I was just, 
I was afraid that it kind of undercut what I felt the story to really be about so far in the season, and that is the threat of white supremacy. Um, and I, I thought that by making this white supremacist group also kind of a like supervillain technology cult bent on some kind of world domination. I, I thought it was just kind of silly and un, kind of really undercut what it was about. But then I thought about it more and I thought, actually, this is maybe the most Watchmen thing that this show has done so far. So I, I have a follow up to that, but, but let's wait for a minute and get to that in, j- in just a couple seconds here. So okay. uh, Senator Bob Benson says, I'm not a murderer. I'm a politician. That basically he came down here to lead the Seventh Cavalry to make sure that they don't like disrupt the peace. And it says that that's what Judd was doing with the with the police officers too. That basically both of them were, I don't know if they were installed in their positions or they found themselves in these positions. And then their responsibility was to keep the peace between the two uh, groups. And uh, Wade does not like that uh, at all. And I understand from his point of view, knowing that the police are working with the Seventh Cavalry seems like the biggest betrayal of his beliefs yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, essentially, um, essentially, Bob Benson says, um, "All right, listen. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to show you this video." which is a very lost thing too. Like this is essentially a a Dharma video, right? Uh, I'm going to show you this video. It's going to, it's going to set you free, but what you have to do is you have to sort of set up Angela Abar because she's hiding something. And he says specifically, he wants Angela off the board for a couple of days while he quote wraps things up. I want to get to that in a minute, too, but he uses a phrase that I think is so perfect. He says, call it a squid pro quo, squid pro quo, because we are living in the golden age of using quid pro quo quote on the news 400 times a day right now. I mean, it's just so timely. Yeah, it's like amazingly (laughs) timely. And there's no way that anyone could have known. Oh, no, no way at all. I mean, unless unless this is all an even bigger conspiracy, which, you know, who knows? (laughs) That is true. So squid pro quo. Amazing. Um, So basically, he has shown a video that was shot on November 1st or or October 31st. I forget if it says one day or two days before the squid attack happens. And it's Adrian Veidt, and he is saying, like, President Redford, uh, if you're seeing this, congratulations that you were inaugurated today as president. How do I know that? Well, I didn't I didn't predict it. I planned it. And he basically says that, you know, he planned this whole thing out in advance and, and that he's going... He also mentions a question we had early in the show, which is that there will need to be more squid falls throughout the years to basically keep up the ruse. And then he says something like, so sit back for the next few hours and I'll explain or whatever. And we don't see the next few hours of the show. Unfortunately, I would like to see a full video of Vite, like explaining uh, how all this is going to work. But that's Oh, man, that would make great uh, like like Blu-ray uh, special features. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but so here's the question I wanted to talk to you about before we get to sort of the last bits of the uh, of the episode here. There are sort of two very different things going on in Tulsa right now, and both of them are alarming to folks like Wade and Angela. On one hand, there is the Lady True Will Alliance that seems to be plotting something. I mean, they they killed Judd. They, uh, you know, stole Angela's car. There is something happening in a couple of days from them. It seems like they are not in cahoots with the Seventh Cavalry and and Senator Bob Benson because he he thinks that Angela killed Judd, or at least she's covering it up. And so, if he was in cahoots with Will, he would know that's not the case. 
right? But well, I I would think so, but it does seem the things that he says, at least timeline wise, match up well, that's with what, I was what say, Will yeah. says in the previous episode. And so I would not be surprised if um Lady True as an extension maybe of uh, Fight is behind all of this, actually. which I know I said last episode that maybe she she doesn't seem nefarious necessarily, but like I, I hadn't really thought about it in this way. Um maybe she is pulling the strings pulling everyone's strings, and so Bob only knows what he needs to know. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I don't think that's good or bad storytelling. I think it's just interesting. Um, yeah. Sort of yeah. what's going on there. So here it comes, Zach. So now now we get a, a shot of, of Vite in Viteland. Oh, my goodness. This whole sequence is just glorious. I'm going to let you talk about this a little bit. So tell us what we see here. Okay, so... Um... We get kind of a follow-up from, I think, the third episode it was, where uh, Vite was testing out his um, his suit on the clones. Um, and we see him putting on this new version of the suit, which it does seem like he did get some buffalo skin or something that's a bit more, a bit sturdier. Um, and... Uh, I'm not forgetting anything. There wasn't anything before all of this happened, right? This is no. where we pick up. Okay, yeah. okay. I thought so, yeah. So he is getting ready to be loaded onto um, the giant trebuchet and get and get launched um, in his spacesuit. And he is launched, and he goes outside the bounds of whatever this pocket dimension is, and he ends up on another planet um so i i think which, we're supposed to believe it's a moon um yes and i think the, i think it's orbiting a ringed planet if i remember correctly you're not quite sure of that um i thought maybe it was a moon of mars but you kind of see later that mars appears higher in the sky maybe i don't know okay i I thought I saw. I thought I remember seeing a ringed planet. It, it very well I... could have been. I'm not positive. Um, okay. But I will say that the piece of music played is Debussy's uh, "Claire de Lune," which means moonlight. So I presume it is a moon for that reason as well. Okay. Uh, but we we see Vite land on this moon, still tethered by a rope, <laughs> which is again hilarious. Um, and we see just dozens of dead clones. And we see him start to arrange the clones in a pattern uh, and also possibly, not possibly, definitely uh, breaking off some of their bones and their arms and legs and just like creating this pattern from their dead bodies. Yes. And it eventually pans out and we see that he has written, save me, and then we see a D. We don't see the rest of that word, just save me D. We can presume it's Save Me, Dr. Manhattan, which is a lot save of writing. my D. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or Save Me, DM, maybe, or whatever, but Save Me. And then we see him very quickly jolted back to Earth or wherever he is, to Viteland. Huh. And, and I, I, Go ahead. I was going to say, I almost expected uh, Remy Zero, Somebody Save Me, to start playing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And uh, who is who is there to greet him when he's back in Viteland? Um, was it the the game? It was the game warden. Warden. Yes. I keep wanting to say the game master. Game master Anthony. Anthony. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's a very specific reference. I hope some of you enjoy. Um, <sighs> but yeah, uh, the game the game warden is there, and he basically says like, "I've warned you a, a bunch of times, but you keep breaking the rules. You're under arrest." Now, I have a game warden question for you that I don't think you're going to have an answer to, and I certainly don't have an answer to it, but it's got me thinking. So we don't get a great look at the game warden. He has a mask on. Um, he's, he's By the way, he's very much the Republic serial vi- a hero 
to Vice Republic serial villain in this, like so the, the way he is stylized on that. He has a sword and he has a mask and all of that. He also has a, a sort of pencil thin Errol Flynn Zorro mustache. Do you think the game warden is a Phillips? So that was kind of like my first thought is that maybe he was. Um, I have seen, so, you know, now we are recording after the third episode aired. So, um, people have seen the game warden and I saw some articles cropping up that are, you know, something along the lines of is game warden such and such character that we already know. Um, and I have not looked at any of those. Um, so, but there does at least seem to be some speculation that the game warden may be a previous watchman character, which I think is weird. Um, my first thought actually was that he was a Philip, maybe a, you know, a, a Philip in a very prestigious role. Right. Um, yes. Because, because you want or to know maybe what even my, the original Phillips, maybe you want to know what my theory, you know, I feel like we can talk about this now. My theory about who the Phillips and the Crookshanks are. Okay. I, I, I I think that they are the life that Dr. Manhattan went and made after the events of Watchmen. Oh, that's interesting. Um, oh, okay, so here here is where I'm 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 unsure, and I'm gonna let you be the audience surrogate here, Zach. I was looking for something on IMDb today, and I came across. I was looking for the name of the of the seventh K woman. Okay, and I couldn't okay. find it, but listed on IMDb is like you see Phillips and you see, you know, whoever, and then you see Miss Crookshanks and there's a slash and there's another name there. And it's a name that has a very, very strong Watchmen connection, but is not a character from the original Watchmen. And I kind of don't want to say it on the show because I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but it's on IMDb. Do you want me to talk about this? I want to look at it. Hold on. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll talk while you do that. Um, okay. But so uh, some of the articles that I think people have seen, I mean, ha have been uh, referencing with um, with the Game Warden are, are going into a very specific former Watchmen character, one that has been talked about on the show quite a bit but never seen. And I don't okay, think so that's the case. Okay, so you've you've looked at that. I have looked that. at that. Yes, yes. Do do people think that it is uh, Doctor Manhattan or yes, something that like is, that? That is exactly what they think. Okay, so I'm looking on IMDb and I only see the one name. Besides, go, go to episode the... five. Okay, okay. So I guess we're we're gonna we're gonna say spoiler alert here if you don't want to know what IMDb says about somebody, um, but it lists Sarah Vickers who plays Miss Crookshanks as also playing uh, Erica Manson, a.k.a. Marionette, a character introduced by Jeff Johns in Doomsday Clock. So, yeah. So I remember when Watchmen was, like, first being talked about and, like, the initial casting stuff was coming out. And I, I very much remember because uh, DC3 cast co-host uh, Vince Ostrowski um, made a lot of snide comments about this casting, but I remember when it was announced that Mime and Marionette had been cast for the TV show, which, yeah, if you are only familiar with Watchmen and not with Doomsday Clock, Doomsday Clock is another, um, to quote Bleeding Cool, unofficial uh, <laughs> sequel uh, to Watchmen, uh, written by Jeff Johns, and it is a crossover between Watchmen and DC Comics, essentially. And it, and it introduces these two new characters, um, kind of, uh, you know, Watchmen-esque villains named Mime and Marionette. And um, I, you know, had made it six episodes into the show, and we hadn't seen a doomsday clock version of mime and marionette pop up and so i had maybe started to wonder if phillips and crookshanks were mime and marionette for the purposes of the show and if that's the case i wonder if they are those characters in name only or if we are actually going to meet the originals who are those characters yeah i don't know um, 
but I still I still kind of stand by my theory that that the fetuses in the pond are the life the the life that Dr. Manhattan created. That could certainly be the case. Uh, I would not doubt that. Um, all right. So anyway, uh, after we leave there, we see uh, we get a really interesting conversation overheard in the um, in the police precinct between Panda and Red Scare, and Panda is saying that he believes that Hooded Justice is Doctor Manhattan. <laughs> Yeah, even though they were at different times and all of that, and I just think it's funny that basically everyone on this show is lying about who Doctor Manhattan is, or is or is misinformed about who Doctor Manhattan is. That's uh, very funny to me. Uh, we also got a nice uh, acoustic cover of "Careless Whisper" by Wham. Uh, so then we see basically we see Wade do what he what he said he would do. You know, he was threatened by Bob Benson, who said if you don't set up Angela and you tell them that I'm the leader of the seventh cavalry, no one's going to believe you. And I'm going to say you're crazy and that'll be easy to prove because of your tinfoil hat. And so he basically inadvertently, he, he, he sees an opportunity to get Angela to basically out herself to Lori and she takes it and Lori is trying to arrest her. But before she can, she drinks. She swallows the entire bottle of nostalgia. Yeah, <laughs> probably gonna go well. Yeah, I, I'm sure that'll go swimmingly in the future. Um, so the last thing that we see in the episode is we get a different version of some enchanted evening by Frank Sinatra playing in the background, and we see Looking Glass show up at his house. He has a he has his new alarm that has arrived. And he, uh, well, I, I do want to say one thing. Um, he asks Angela before she's arrested, is anything true? And that reminds me, because my mind just goes biblical. It reminds me of Pontius Pilate asking Jesus, what is truth? Mm-hmm. Just sort of this, and you know, again, a betrayer. Right, yeah. Anyway. Um, but so he, he goes to throw away his new alarm, but then he thinks better of it and picks it up and brings it back in the house. And the alarm continues to be basically the comic relief for this episode. But the very last thing we see is the 7th Cavalry shows up to his house and we see them, guns drawn, about to go into his home and we cut the black. Yeah. Uh, also does not look good for Wade. Um, I, uh, you know, this this ends ominously for him. I, I could see a situation where he somehow, you know, maybe takes them all out. But I, I honestly think that it would maybe be more thematically um, satisfying for this to be the end of Wade. If not the end of Wade, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I'm really unsure of this. I would be very surprised because Tim Blake Nelson is one of the more uh, high-profile cast members and is clearly a very important member of the show. And they've already lost, you know, uh, um, Don Johnson as Judd. I think it's a lot to kill off the second character just five episodes into the show. But I wouldn't be surprised of it. I really wouldn't. Yeah, I I wouldn't either. Um It'll be interesting to see. Yes, it will be. I really, I just really don't know. <laughs> so five episodes in, how are you feeling about the show? It's still good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I told you after I watched this episode that I just did not expect to get a uh, one. I didn't expect to get a looking glass centric episode this early in. And two, I didn't expect it to make me just, sympathize and even kind of in a strange way like really love looking glass so uh that is like i mean again like i feel (laughs) i feel super annoying for talking about loss so much but like this is this is emblematic of like the best flashback episodes of lost um 
which would take a character that you thought you knew so well and show you a piece of their life and then completely change the way that you perceive them. Um, which I love. <laughs> so this I was mean, good for that. Going off of the, the John Locke thing that you said earlier, you know, that, that first John Locke episode where it, it turns out that Locke was in a wheelchair before, before landing on the Island, that episode completely changes your view of Locke. Mm hmm. And I feel like this is a similar type of episode to that. Yeah. Which is why I hope that Locke is not in the lock. Otherwise, why I hope that Looking Glass is not necessarily done, uh, you know, as a character on this show just yet. But, oh, man. What if Dr. Manhattan comes in and just, like, saves him? That'd be wild. That would be wild. But, you know, not more wild than using the frozen bodies of clones to write a message on a moon. Yeah, that nothing tops that. <laughs> anyway, we're on Twitter. He's Wilker Fox. I'm Brian Needs a Nap. We'll be back next week with uh, the sixth episode of Watchmen, which uh, we should say we have seen the first six episodes of the series. So next week is the last one that we are seeing this far ahead. We don't know if we're going to get more before the rest of the season or not, uh, but, you know, here we are. This episode is called This Extraordinary Being. And um, spoiler alert, it's a doozy. Yup. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.